Okay, so we are into the third week of Christmas. Nearly Christmas, right? I couldn't believe it. We've been doing the Advent calendar with, with Elle. Got to like, you know, yesterday. It was like, holy smokes, it's the 19th of December. What is going on here, right? It feels like Christmas is flying up upon us, right? And it's Christmas every year as a church, right? Because you, you know, you tend to have the same readings. You tend to, to try and move through some of those things in the Christmas season. You know, things like lessons and carol services. You read the same readings each year, right? Because you tend to be dropping into the same stuff. It's really an opportunity opportunity every year to try and speak into a different element of what the Christmas story means, right? Those of us that arrange these are kind of pulling our hair out, trying to think, well, how, how could, how could I, you know, what angle I'm going to come at the Christmas story this year? And this year, we decided that we were going to go after the theme new. So over the last couple of weeks, Stuart, uh, Helen la- last week, me today, and uh, uh, me again on, on Christmas Eve, and then Lucy uh, on the, the last service of 2020, we're going after the theme new, that in the Christmas story, God was doing something altogether new, so new that it points forward to the day, one day when this whole world, everything in it, everything we know will be made all things new. There is something future-orientated about the Christmas story that we all so well know and love. And today we're talking about new peace, right? As the parent of two small kids, right? Peace is pretty hard to come by, okay? Uh, in the last month or so, our smallest, Levi, who's about four to five months old now, okay? He got a pretty heavy cold. It wasn't coronavirus, okay? Just so you're all, you know, can put that all to rest, right? He got a pretty heavy head cold, right? And uh, he got it after his latest round of jabs that he got, right? So the, the misery sets in usually about 48 hours after they get their injection. So it well and truly set in with Levi. He got this head cold, right? And so he cried a lot, right? And he just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And he cried to the point that our youngest child eventually lost his voice, right? It got completely pathetic. It got to the point where he opened his mouth and it was like, <laughs> like that's all that came out, right? And so uh, as the parent of a very small child, he doesn't sleep particularly well, okay? I can honestly say today that I am that horrible a person that honestly part of me was quite thankful for this. Like, I don't know how much he cried at night because frankly, I couldn't hear him, right? And there, he may well have been like just silent noise coming out of his little mouth in his little Moses basket, but I was soundly asleep because he no longer had the power to wake me up, right? Peace, it is hard to come by. And even for you and I, right, you could arguably say that the last, year, the last year has maybe been less busy than ever. Some of you will have spent months on furlough. Maybe you are back on furlough now. Maybe you're looking forward. I was with my sister yesterday. She works in retail in Belfast City Centre. She's like, well, I'm working to Christmas Eve and then I'm off for six weeks, right? Maybe in some ways you could say that your life has been less busy, less full of noise, less hectic, right? But then there is your phone. There's WhatsApp. There's Zoom. And if your life was anything like my life through this last six or nine months of the year, it just never stops, right? I know I'm meant to be a millennial and therefore like entirely taken with everything that like Apple creates, right? I'm meant to be in to technology. But honestly, somebody told me the other day they got an Apple watch. Those of you who are wearing an Apple watch, okay, cool, great. I honestly can't think of anything worse. Now people can contact me and it's attached to my arm, right? This is the worst thing I can ever imagine, right? The beauty of having a phone is that it can be left somewhere else. But now it's like attached to me at all times. Can't think of anything worse. Those of you that know how terrible a text replier I am get it right you get how terrible that would be for me 
Peace is hard to come by. And yet peace is one of the central themes of the Christmas message. And it's the main kind of headline of the reading that we read today, right? It's the headline statement of one of the great Christmas prophetic texts that we read at Lessons and Carols and Christmas Service through this Advent season every year from Micah. He will be our peace. But really, whenever we say the word peace in this particular passage, actually, we're really in a section that's talking about leadership, right? Really, it says peace, but when you look at that whole section, it's really more about leadership than it is about peace. And we live in a world that is obsessed with leadership, don't we? It's obsessed with leadership, right? Our leaders born. How do we create leaders? How do we develop leaders? What's the right model? Is it servant leadership? Is it transformational leadership? Ross Martin right now is doing some sort of qualification on leadership and is hating life, right? And on and on and on, right? Piles Bookstore, which is the largest independent bookshop in the world in Portland, it currently lists over just over 14,000 books on leadership alone. We are obsessed with Leadership. And I think what fuels this appetite for writing on leadership and for consumption on our part is that leadership in our time is just disappointing, isn't it? By and large, we feel such disappointment with the leadership that we see in just about every area of the world in which we live, right? Business, media, politics, and politics, and politics, and Stormont, right? And maybe even especially in the church. When we hear about another leader that's fallen, when we hear about another church that's gone into catastrophe, right? We feel so disappointed with the leadership that we see in the world in which we live. Georgia election official Gabriel Sterling gave the most remarkable press conference uh, about a month or so ago off the back of the supposed controversy surrounding the U.S. presidential election, right? Georgia, which was one of the battleground states, if you followed it, and let's be honest, who didn't follow it and get sucked in by it all, right? Georgia was a battleground state, uh, and it had already conducted its second recount of the votes, which both of which revealed the same result had happened by something like .002 variance or something like that, right? So basically, it just affirmed the same result. And yet Sterling gave the speech because of continued pressure and death threats that were issued to members of the election team. And he outspokenly condemned the sitting president and Republican senators for not speaking up and condemning the violent threats. This is what he said. This is the headline point of his whole speech. If you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. Right? He's aiming straight down the barrel of the camera. He says, Mr. President and Republican senators, if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. And how often do we feel like that when we look at the leadership on show in our world? How often do we feel like that? There's another press conference on TV. You get called into a meeting in work. Whatever it has been, this season in many ways has highlighted leadership and its flaws in probably a more unique way than we've seen in a long, long time. And I say this with the greatest possible humility, right? As a leader myself, it's not like I get everything perfect or right. It's not like there's not probably huge blind spots in the way that I lead myself. But we find ourselves so disappointed with the leadership we see in the world in which we live. And both passages that we've read today, both from Micah and from Isaiah, right? Both passages point uh, to what we celebrate in these days, these Christmas days, right? Like they're pointing right at it, right? Out of Bethlehem will come a ruler. Out of Jesse's roots, that's King David's line, will come a king. It's pointing at leadership. 
And the one they're talking about, that we sing about, that we gather around at Christmas, right? He is the leader and he's called Jesus. And Christmas means we get to look forward to new kingship, to new rule, to new authority, new leadership, and new peace. And today I want to think about how that new peace that we come to gather around in the Christmas story is found first in a person, and second is lived with imagination. It's found first in a person. Let's just read Micah 5, 2 to 5 again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. So just background, right? The book of Micah was written sometime around the late 8th century. And as a period, right, of time, that second half of the 8th century witnessed the most affluent period in the kingdom of Judah and Israel since the breakup of the nation after King Solomon had died and and the, the nation had been split apart around 922 BC, right? It was an affluent time. Here's the thing. Things were going well. Why do I mention that? I mention that because that's quite strange in a time to long for new leadership because people only tend to long for new leadership when things are going badly, don't they? You tend to want to change things up when things aren't going so great. Look at football, right? The pressure that come on Premier League managers when things aren't going so great. When it's going well, no one's asking for new leadership, are they? Things right now are going well in that part of the world. But with all the increase in wealth, right, had come along with it a changing culture. They're doing well, and the money had changed the way that the world, in, uh, that their world was working. For a start, there was the development of what we'd now call secular culture in Judah. As people got wealthier, they had no need for gods of any type, right? And as they did that, they began to walk away from some of the distinctive cultural practices that made them who they were. How they treated the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the outsider started to shift away from compassion and towards distance. One of the most obvious things, for example, uh, was one of the most distinct practices of the people of God. It was the year of Jubilee, where every 50th year, people were released from debts of every kind. Land was returned to its original owners. People rested. The land rested. There was no reaping or harvesting. People returned to their families in that 50th year. It was glorious. It was like the most incredible freedom that came to a nation. And they celebrated it. It was a completely distinct practice for the people of God. And one of the nation's most affluent times... They stopped it. Right now when things are going well, they stopped it. They're not poor. They're wealthier than they've known for an incredibly long time. And like so often in our world, affluence doesn't lead to generosity. Affluence leads to callousness, doesn't it? And so they stop it. The culture is changing And the best way to describe the spiritual health of the nation, right? Financial health, great. Living, great. All of that stuff, better. Spiritual health of the nation in this time, the best word I can think of is veneer. It's just living with a veneer of spirituality. 
They were living their lives doing what they wanted, all the while holding up the pretense of faith and giving away their distinctiveness in the world. It was a time of veneer. And so comes Micah. And that's why we get what we've got today from the book of Micah. In a world of veneer, disappointed with the leadership of the time, he sees one who is to come who will be the real thing. He's looking around. And he sees the veneer for what it is. And he longs for new leadership. And he will be our peace. What will he be like? Well, the first thing is that the ruler will come from Bethlehem, right? That's one of the things that everybody knows about the Christmas story, right? It happens in Bethlehem. Here's Micah, hundreds of years before, saying he'll come from Bethlehem, right? That's incredible, okay? Uh, And it's incredible, firstly, because Bethlehem was just a nowhere town, right? You've heard that lots of times, but maybe you didn't know this. In fact, it was so much a nowhere town that when Joshua divided the land and gave a list of all the towns and cities, right, with all of their sub-villages in the book of Joshua, okay, there are 115 of them. Bethlehem isn't mentioned. This is the place where the real king, the real leadership is going to come from, right? Bethlehem isn't mentioned. And in lots of ways, it's the most incredible pointer to just how God works, isn't it? He uses the weak and the insignificant, and he raises them up, using them for his kingdom. But it's not just about that, right? It's not just the part where he raises up the weak. It's also a massive slap in the face to places like Jerusalem, right? The sorts of places where we tend to think greatness will come from, don't we? We don't think it comes from Bethlehem. It's going to be this great king that's going to change the world. He's going to come from Jerusalem, right? Or in our terms today, what we mean is New York, London, Paris, California, Tokyo, somewhere like that, right? It doesn't come from places like this or Larne or Antrim, right? We expect to see the big things, the great things come from places like that, don't we? And so for true leadership, true kingship to come, it couldn't come from a place like Bethlehem, could it? You know, as we look at the culture of the world that we live in, we're so often pained by it, aren't we? There is this thought that leadership, the ideas, the innovation will come from the Londons and the New Yorks of this world, isn't it? The high places. So when people in leadership of churches, for example, want to look at what's thriving or what they might adopt into their practices, they look at what somebody's doing in New York or what someone's doing in London, right? They don't look to what people are doing in Nigeria or people are doing in parts of Asia. They look to those sorts of places, don't they? Best practice, it comes from places like that. But what if it comes from the fringes? When I worked for Alpha, One of the great privileges was to work with teams all around the globe. And shortly before I was getting ready to leave that job to come and work from the church, one of our great reflective points as a large organization at the time was that all of the innovation was coming from the places that we least expected. It was coming from Asia. It was coming from Africa. It was coming from places where things were really hard to relate to in lots of ways. But the innovative stuff, the stuff that had incredible life in it, it was coming from the fringes as we saw it. What if... It's already happening in Nigeria and Malaysia and Kenya and South America. There's this incredible observation from a former theology professor at Yale University called Laman Sani, and he wrote this, the post-Christian West will soon give way to the post-Western Christianity. Just take that in for a little minute. The post-Christian West will soon give way to the post-Western Christianity. 
What is the way that we think we are to live? The kingship we think that we live under? What if we have got it wrong? What if we're so impacted by the Western world that we live in that actually what God is calling us to is post-Western Christianity if we want to change the world? You see, leadership in our generation might not come from the places that we expect it. And the leadership of Jesus, it came from an unlikely place. So it's from an unlikely place, right? And it's shaped like a shepherd, right? That's the next feature that we should note, okay? This is what it says in verse four. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. You see, it's that image of the shepherd again. If you want to know uh, what leadership looks like in Jesus' way, then the shepherd is the image that he uses, probably more than anything, right? It's the shepherd image, again, the one that's laced through Scripture time and again. The shepherd was strong and unflinching, fit, courageous. He protected the flock, and he made sure that they weren't taken. He made sure they weren't fleeced. And three things could characterize the shepherds of Jesus' day, right? The first thing was this, constant attention. They never took their eyes off the sheep. They literally lived and slept amongst the sheep when they were out in the fields. The second was this, fearless courage. What are the two things that the the biblical image of the shepherd carries? A rod and a staff, right? Those things are both not particularly nice things, right? One is to hook sheep, to take them away from danger. The other is to bait things that came to try and take them, right? Those are not nice things. They're not friendly things. They are utilitarian. They're forceful. They're necessary, fearless courage. And the final thing was patient love. Shepherd knew every single sheep by name. Now that sounds like leadership, doesn't it? And here's the kicker, verse five, he will be our peace. He will be our peace. All the things in the prophecy, strength and majesty, security and greatness, courage, attention and love, he will be it all. The he, it's Jesus. In other words, the leadership we seek, the peace we long for is only found in him. The actual literal translation of that line is, this man means peace. And now we're beginning to get what it means. He was all of those things. He is all of those things. Jesus embodies it. Jesus is it. And why is that important, right? It's important because a leadership like that, right? A leadership of that kind of quality, that cares that much, that has that much integrity, that much authority, that much dignity and beauty, right? It invades our inner world. In other words, leadership like that, it gets under our skin, doesn't it? It's like listening to how players in football talk about uh, coaches like Jurgen Klopp or Sir Alex Ferguson, that somehow they were able to get under their players' skin and make them believe that they were better than they actually were able to lift them from whatever flunk they were in, able to galvanize them as a people, able to make them better than they actually were, get under their skin, able, enable them to be and do more than they ever could before. You see, leadership like that, it invades our inner world and it leads our expectations to be transformed. You know, insecurity is an interesting term. And by definition, insecurity is caring too much what other people think about us, our life, our choices, just us in general, isn't it? It's by caring too much what somebody else's opinion is of who we are. But what Jesus offers 
is security. This is what it said in verse 4. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Security is caring only about what one person thinks about us, and that person is Jesus, the one where the true leadership comes from, the one where the true kingship is, the true authority, the true dignity, the true integrity, the true peace. Constant attention. He never takes his eyes off us. He's never distant or detached. No matter how much you might feel like you don't know where he is, no matter how much you might feel like you're alone, he has never and he will never take his eyes from you. Fearless courage. The type of courage that would take him all the way to the cross for you and for I. The king we're looking at in the manger every Christmas is the one who went to the cross and was raised to life so that we might too. And finally, patient love. He knows every single one of us by name. Who knows that not a single bit of our journey will be wasted. Even the bad stuff, even the stuff we might be ashamed of, might be worked for good because we love him. Peace is found in a person. Just one person. No one else. The one that we gather around in the manger every Christmas. Jesus But secondly, peace is lived out with imagination. Peace is found in a person and peace is lived out with imagination. This is what it says in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. You know, when we look back on 2020, of all the many things that have happened in this year, and they have been many, I think that one of the significant things that we will see in the days ahead is a culture we have been doing much to reflect on our attitude towards the black community and to issues of race altogether, haven't we? It's been one of the big things of this year, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the things that have went along with that. And in many ways, we white people, right? In many ways, we can often look at, uh, at where we are and see black people in positions at the top of most areas of life now, sport, media, music, business, education, so on and on and on and on and on and on, right? We can often look at that picture and it can very easily lead us to have an attitude that says something like, look how far we've come, right? And in many ways, that's right. Look how far we have come. We've traveled such a long way. Racism is now widespread denounced. Barriers have come down. For sure they have. But if we've learned anything from the Black Lives Matter movement and the, and the movement, it's that we're in, uh, is that, it's that this whole section of population because of skin color and race are crying out to us, you still have such a long way to go. Sure, there is a point to be able to say, look how far we've come. But if we've learned anything from that entire section of our society, it's that they are crying out to us. You still have such a long way to go. And the question is, how on earth do we go further with a movement like that? Well, in that famous 1963 speech, Martin Luther King told us how when he said, I have a dream. If we're going to go further, we have to imagine it. We have to imagine a different world. 
And why do I say that? I say that because the context of Isaiah's prophecy is that the Assyrians at this point in time are the conquering military and cultural force of the ancient Near East, right? And yet Isaiah in his prophecy, as you can read it there in Isaiah 11, uh, he sees their overthrow at the hands of the one who is to come, right? That's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 11. And this new shoot that he talks about will come from Jesse's root. That's David's line, okay? The king, David, Israel's greatest king. But Isaiah paints a picture of this coming king who will do what David's line never could. He'll rule with compassion for the oppressed, toughness towards the oppressor, and his significance will go beyond not just Israel, but to the whole world. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions. Who? To the poor of the earth, right? He's saying he's going to change the whole world. He's talking about Jesus. And the Christmas celebrations are the celebrations for this king. And he'll rule with the sort of qualities that will mark his greatness. The sorts of qualities that Isaiah talks about here, right? Wisdom, to know what to do in all things. Understanding, to see the heart of an issue. Counsel, the ability to know the right course of action. And power is the power to see it through. Knowledge, greater than just knowing. Knowledge is the personal, intimate relationship with the subject. And fear, which means loyalty, obedience, worship, and concern. That's the sort of king. That king is coming. That king is Jesus. That's the one who we come to today. And he sounds amazing, doesn't he? The picture sounds incredible, doesn't it? I mean, if you were under the rule or the fear of the rule of the Assyrians, a king like that sounds incredible, doesn't it? So why the imagination? The imagination is because Isaiah would never see it. The point is that Isaiah sees the conquering of the Assyrians, but it won't happen for another 100 years. He sees it ahead, but he'll never see it with his own eyes. He'll never know it. He hasn't seen it in reality. He's seen it in his head. He's seen it in his heart. Maybe he was disappointed that he'd never see it or experience it himself in his lifetime. I know I would be if I had a picture of what was to come like that. But the point is this. He had the imagination. And I say that today because hopeful living, kingdom living, Jesus living depends on our vision. It depends on our imagination. Alec Mateer, the Bible commentator, defines imagination like this. Imagination is the capacity to be hopeful and confident in a reality that contradicts our experience. Man alive, do we need that right now? Imagination refuses to let our senses determine what is possible, doesn't it? Imagination refuses to to be determined by what we see and feel and know and the stuff that is right in front of us, the stuff that our senses feels, right? And the thing is that faith itself, when you think about it, is an act of imagination, isn't it? By coming here today, by professing yourself as a Christian, you've already taken, taken part in an incredible act of imagination and vision and dream, haven't you? So why is it that we seem to give up on our imaginations of how the world could be just so easily? Why is it that we seem to give up just like that? We take on the imagination to give our lives to Jesus and then when we do, it's like we give up imagining the world another way. Faith requires us to inhabit and envision a world that we can't perceive with our senses. 
Faith requires us to see beyond what we see, to hear beyond what we hear, to feel beyond what we feel and smell and sense is all that there is in this world. Faith requires us to believe deep down in our hearts that there is more, that there is more, that this is not just all that there is, that there's more going on in our lives and in our world. Just listen to how Paul, for example, describes the Christian life and calls us to see the world in Ephesians 1, right? This is what Paul writes. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Just imagine a world like that. Our faith requires us to live lives of of imagination and vision. And the Christmas story requires us just the same. Mature students. I'm segueing out to mature students, right? I'm not just mentioning them as acts of imagination, right? I fear that many of you have experienced them in your life, right? I know that I did, okay? Uh, that segment of the world that as a student you cannot possibly stand, right? As an 18-year-old sat in a lecture with some 35-year-old who feels like, you know, an ancient human being when you're 18, right? Uh, in the other part of the room, you're like, oh, mature students. Every time they open your mouth, you scorn them under your breath until I realized in the last year, I am in fact now a mature student, right? That most hated of people on the this earth, right? Anyway, during my uni degree, um, I took a class in that degree called Gender and the Law, and it was really interesting. I actually really enjoyed it. The lecturer was a very provocative, middle-aged woman who, as a young man, liked to like provoke everything about the way I thought I was living my life, right? And uh, I loved it, right? And I, it was one of those, you know, when you, when you study a law degree, lots of the stuff, you're like, none of this makes any difference in the world, right? But when you do something like that, you're like, oh, actually, that could make a difference, right? So I'm really enjoying it, okay? And every single time, our tutor would ask, us a question about some aspect of the legal system. People like me would would hold up our hand and talk openly, trying to imagine a different, better world, right? You were in a gender in the law class after all, right? It's asking you to start imagining the laws changing and stuff being different. So I would hold my hand up, I would make some sort of comment. And then the mature, middle-aged woman on the other side of the room, right? She wouldn't even hold her hand up. She would just launch into it. See, of course you think that because you've not lived and you wouldn't know but see if you're like me and you know anything you know that it wouldn't work see if you've got experience like my life experience and she would just go on like this like this like for an eternity meanwhile my lecture would be like mm-hmm. and I'm just like belittled like this 18 year old male just like what an idiot what is the point of me ever opening my mouth the thing was she just shoot down people like me why because she said she had experience and I didn't And that's the thing, right, when it comes to our Christian lives. Experience versus imagination. And this is really important. We've got to get this, especially in the Christmas message. You see, experience tells us that prayers go unanswered. 
Experience tells us that people let us down. Experience tells us that lots of people we pray for won't get healed. Experience tells us that life is painful. Experience tells us that the way of the world, the way of money and privilege and property and security and all of the things that we are told and think are way better, way better than anything we're reading in the Bible, right? Experience tells us people will let us down. Experience tells us the world is a hard place. Experience tells us that you should just give up on hope for Christmas because we're getting locked down for six weeks afterwards, right? But imagination tells us that we are redeemed. Imagination tells us that God hears us, sees us, and is present with us. Imagination tells us that our failures are dealt with and are behind us. Imagination tells us that we've come alive in Jesus. Imagination tells us that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Imagination tells us that we have authority, and it tells us that the kingdom is at hand, and it's ever advancing, even when it might feel like the world is going backwards. I mean... Just look at the words or the worlds that many of the prophets lived in, right? They were in a bad way. They looked nothing like the pictures that they painted, right? When you read the Old Testament prophets, so many of the pictures are incredible. And yet the worlds they lived in, they weren't so great. And for that reason, so many prophecies, when you read them, they start with saying something like this, the day is coming, right? And then it will go on to paint a picture of what that day will look like. And that's incredible, okay? Because they were speaking and hoping and imagining, they were believing against their experience of the world. But then Jesus comes. And what does Jesus say? Jesus very often starts the things that he says with, the day has come. The day has come, not is coming, has come. You see, Jesus is speaking to the new reality that we live in. The reality we come to celebrate this Christmas, right? I mean, he teaches in parables that we've been going through over the last while, over and over and over again, calling us to believe that we could just imagine a world that looked like this where there was forgiveness like this, where there was authority like this, where there was return like this, where there was investment like this. All of the pictures of the parables are an attempt to help you and I imagine a world like that. In 1967, the Apollo 1 rocket exploded on takeoff from its Cape Canaveral launch pad. They lost three of their brightest young astronauts at the time and all of the momentum of the space program. Uh, and it was a huge tragedy in the moment that it happened, right? And reflecting back on the incident 40 years on uh, as to how it happened and how they didn't see it coming, uh, after all, it was like a test flight they were attempting to make at the time. Why they didn't see what happened. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm kind of like it exploded, okay? You're strapping people to a rocket that in its nature explodes, right? Some part of me is like, that should maybe be considered as an option. But they didn't see it coming at the time. And interviewed 40 years later, former astronaut Frank Borman said this, it was a failure of imagination. The rocket blew up because they just never imagined that something like that could happen. They simply couldn't imagine that a simple test on the test pad could be that catastrophic. Catastrophic. It was a failure of imagination. 
And I say that today, you know, because I'm so grateful for apologists and for resources like the Alpha Course and other things which help us to see just how reasonable and believable our Christian faith is, right? They try to help us see the bits that all make sense. And I'm so grateful for those things, like those first couple of sessions in the Alpha Course, if you've done it, right? Most people who are Christians spend their time going, wow, I never, I never knew that my faith made this much sense, right? I mean, it, it, when you reflect on stuff, it's important to know the stuff that lines up that makes sense. But you know what? The problem is the other side of the coin. And it's just how our biblical and kingdom imaginations have got dulled, haven't they? Like we want to believe that every aspect of our faith will make sense, but the truth is, it doesn't. It's not logical. It requires a leap of faith. It requires imagination. I mean, often the hardest parts to imagine our faith looking like are the very clearest parts in the Bible, aren't they? Like forgive everyone. Imagine that, because that's really easy, isn't it? Like go out and baptize people. Go out, see people healed. Go out and ask for demons to be cast out. And the stuff the Bible is really straight about is very often the stuff that we find hardest to imagine. We give up imagining our faith, our lives, and our world another way. And yet Jesus' birth and life doesn't allow us to live with him without seeing the world a different way. The bottom line is this. If you feel like what faith asks of you and me is impossible, then you're in the right place. If you're at this point today where you feel like what faith is asking of you is impossible, then you're in the right place. See, imagination touches the heart, doesn't it? It's the crucial link. James K.A. Smith, the philosopher, theologian, he says that imagination is the link between the head and the heart. And he's right, isn't it? Because when we imagine things, we begin to believe things, and then we begin to walk things out. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's the author of The Little Prince, which, if you can't be bothered reading the book, is a really great animated film on Netflix, right? But this is what he wrote. If you want to build a ship... You don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them to tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's our Christian life, isn't it? You want to teach people to live a certain way. You want to teach people to be a certain sort of people. Then what Jesus is doing through the parables, the Christmas story, all of it is to help you imagine the world another way and long for the endless immensity of it all. So when we come to imagine what helps, three really quick things. One, the Bible. I'm sorry if you were hoping for some sort of miracle cure there, right? But there isn't one, right? If you want a biblical imagination, then you kind of need to get in touch with the thing that spells out the biblical imagination, right? A view of the world formed by the true story of the world, then we need to keep coming back to that picture to keep seeing it again. I mean, goodness knows, just that picture from Ephesians 1 that I read today should be enough to start to stir some things in your heart and in your head. Second is art. And I say that because I don't know about you, but it's never been easier to access and be rewired by incredible art, by how it speaks to the deep parts of our soul. People like Scott the Painter and Morgan Harper Nichols and Charlie Mackesy and John O'Donoghue and T.S. Eliot, just whether it's writing or it's pictures or it's video or whatever it is, art somehow manages to stir something in the soul, right? They speak to that longing for endless immensity and help us to be rewired to see the world another way. And third, is practice stepping out 
doing things and saying things and believing things that are beyond our experience. They help us to know another reality. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes possible. In our faith, that's the truth. Practice simply makes possible. The great theologian Francis Schaeffer once wrote this. The Christian is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars. We should be the most creative, most full of imagination, most full of dreams and hopes and expectations for the world of any section of the world as we know it. So the question is today, as you come to the Christmas picture once more, as you come to see the King, the Messiah, the hope of the world just laid in that manger, as you come to know again that our peace and our hope and our security can only be found in him. As you come to see that our faith requires imagination to see the world another way, the question is today, how do you see the world? I'll bet this last week has changed how you see the world. How do you see the world? Because peace is here. Kingdom and rule and authority is here. And because either he is who he says he is and we need to start to imagine the world the way he does with his vision, with his resources, with his authority or you don't believe it, so you won't. And the narratives of the world and the good news and the bad news and all the rest will frame how you see the world or his story will frame how you see the world. So how do you see it this Christmas? I'm going to ask the guys to come and we're going to sing in a little minute. But right at the end of Micah um, chapter 5 and verse 6, right, we just read the first part of, of verse 5, but it goes on to say, He will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword. And I say that today because what uh, the prophet is saying in this particular line, right? In other words, is that a peace like this, a ruler like this, faith like this, gives authority on foreign ground. He's not just saying that we'll defend the Assyrians and kind of knock them back out of our land. He's saying that we will rule in their land. And I say that today because Jesus' coming isn't just ruling in here. It's ruling out there. It's over every territory and every circumstance. And I say that today because right now it feels like the world is governed by enemy territory, doesn't it? It feels like the world in which we live. Everywhere we turn is just like narrowing around us, doesn't it? Our expectations, our hopes, even our Christmas shopping, right? It's narrowed. It feels like the world in which we live very often is not our territory as Christians, right? I can't stand the narrative out there from the church that like, you know, the world is bad and it's getting worse and it's just awful and da-da-da. I can't stand that because I don't believe that and I don't see that. And the message of Jesus is that there can be peace, there can be rule, there can be authority, not just on our terms or our territory, but on every territory, on every square patch of this earth that we might be able to know today that he reigns, that he rules, that he is security, and he is our peace.